0: hello and welcome to this week's episode of a mic on the podium with me michael seal before we start i'd like to thank my latest subscribers on patreon Louise and pablo for their support and all my other patreon supporters if you would like to support the podcast go to patreon.com forward slash on the podium and you'll find many ways to subscribe plus extra bonus material and episodes to enjoy including this month's interview with my good friend and composer, Ben Dawson. You can also support the show by leaving a review or rating on Apple Podcasts, which is greatly appreciated and will help the podcast reach a bigger audience. Today, I conduct a conversation with a Romanian conductor who started out as a violinist, but has quickly become a rising star as a conductor. He is currently chief conductor with the WDR Symphony Orchestra in Cologne, and soon to be music director of the Orchestra Nationale de France. It's a pleasure to welcome Christian Machellaru. Christy, really nice to chat to you today.
1: Thank you, Mike, my pleasure.
0: Um, I think having looked you up online, it's fair to say you come from a rather big family. Were you all musical or um, was it just something that hit you early in life?
1: Um, yes, uh, I, I'm the youngest of ten kids, and uh, we were all musical. My parents um, really insisted on all of us playing musical instruments and studying music. Actually, so we all went through the music school system in Romania, in communist Romania, which was uh, which is actually quite wonderful to have um, to have this built-in system where there were specialized schools that offered uh, a very very intense uh, music education alongside the regular curriculum.
0: Yeah I mean that's interesting that you say that in the fact that you know whatever you think of the political structure of communist states Andres Nelson says much the same about his musical studies in communist Latvia that you know he had a wonderful musical upbringing uh, the rest of it you know that's a discussion for another day but at least musically he said he had a great
1: yeah, yeah, I feel uh, I feel very lucky in this way. I think um I I'm not really sure what was the reason why uh, why the eastern bloc countries um put such a huge emphasis on public education, uh, specialized public education I should say. Um but music was definitely definitely very important uh, arts education. So, you know, my curriculum was was really quite uh, rich Um, in enhancing my my music uh, education all the way from, uh, I think I began when I was five years old with uh, uh, music theory. I started first and then the next year I began writing and reading uh, in school and then music was always um, side by side, you know, music theory, history, instrument, choir, orchestra, chamber music harmony classes. Everything was individualized per class and we had one or two of those classes every single day of the week.
0: Wow um, yeah, yeah music in schools uh, coming from the UK <laughs> you know that, <laughs> that's a, a hot topic of discussion. Um, so what at what point did um, your family and you leave Romania and move to the United States?
1: Um, my family actually never left. I, I left by myself. Oh okay. Um, and and I immigrated to the US. Well, I didn't uh, immigrate at first, I just went there to study um, and I uh, finished high school. So my last uh, last year of high school was uh, was done at a wonderful arts academy in uh, Michigan called Interlochen Arts Academy. Um, and it's a, it's a private school that focuses on the arts um, and for arts education and i finished uh, my final year of high school um, there at the age of 17 and then um, i continued in the united states but i i went by myself
0: Mm. and university after interlochen
1: yes i of course i went to uh, university of miami and this was a you know it was at the time i didn't know if this was the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do it 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 happened to fit best uh, at the time with what i needed Um, But in hindsight, looking back, I really, and I'm a strong believer that actually at the university level, before you specialize in a master's degree or a doctorate degree, so in a bachelor degree program, uh, one should really have the ability and the flexibility of being able to explore, to understand who they really are. Mm. So for me, for me, this was a wonderful opportunity because I, of course, I, I was very focused on playing the violin. This was my instrument. And and uh, if I can say so myself, I, I, I was doing quite well. So um, uh, I had never, I never struggled with the violin. This became, <laughs> I felt very comfortable with it. Um, but when I arrived at the University of Miami, uh, I had a beautiful four years where I, I took composition lessons uh, every semester and I conducted the orchestra all the time. And I had very supportive teachers that allowed me to explore all my other areas of interest. Um, and in fact, they nurtured this, um, this uh, self-discovery phase. Uh, to allow me to come to a conclusion uh, to what I really wanted to be.
0: Mm. So it sounds very much like uh, the violin was your 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 top priority, much like myself. I went to music college in the UK uh, and I wanted to become an orchestral violinist. Uh, that was that. Mm-hmm. But whilst I was there, uh, I did a year's conducting and I, did a, I, I was a joint first study composer. Would that be true mm-hmm. for you as well, that you still right now to use a friend of mine saying you still had violin goggles on you was all it was about was playing the violin that's right
1: well i i I like to call myself a recovering violinist (laughs) Uh,
0: very good (laughs) yeah
1: (laughs) just because i I still i when i have the instrument in my hands i i get so much joy and pleasure out of playing it but um i never um while this was my dream for the first part of my life i would say I don't really have any desire to pursue it, to continue pursuing it on a professional level because mm. I think mainly because I once I started conducting, I, I discovered uh, the beauty of conducting and making music with uh, so many people uh, that I, I really don't miss um, the uh, the feeling of being on stage in front of for me violin playing it's a personal thing for me at this point and conducting is how i share uh, yes. my my artistry i guess um so yeah
0: yeah it's interesting um i since i gave up the violin six years ago um and went full time to conducting i think i've realized that the violin was just it was the vehicle that I used to get involved with orchestras that actually orchestras was mm-hmm. the most important thing for me. And you know, if I'd mm-hmm. happened to have been a wonderful percussionist, that would have also been the same. And if I'd happened to have been a wonderful oboist, but the violin was, to me, it wasn't everything. It just happened to be the means by which I could get involved with playing professionally in orchestras. Um, yeah, and yeah, from then on, it's sort of morphed into being a conductor. Yeah,
1: yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, and it's a, it's a, um, I think it's an advantage actually for an orchestral player to become a conductor um, because it, it, conducting overall requires so much of this uh, psychology of of what it is like to be in an ensemble uh, sharing the stage with perhaps a hundred other musicians that are all Um, at the top of their game or uh, they're all uh, you know quite extraordinary at what they do and then where do you fit in and how do you become an individual musician and what does that mean Um, and I think it's important for every conductor to understand that uh, psychology so that then they can carry that understanding with them on the podium Mm. when they when they start to make music with those 100 uniquely gifted individuals that have their own strong identity which is uh necessary to become a musician
0: having left university um i read that you're straight into the music profession as concertmaster of the miami symphony orchestra is that correct
1: well this was actually at the same time that i was doing uh, my studies mm. um i when i arrived from interlock and i was uh, 19 years old after i finished um, my two years there and then um, i arrived in miami and uh, i happened to see an announcement in the local musicians union paper um that they were looking for uh, they were looking for a violinist, a substitute violinist in the Miami Symphony, uh, which is a regional, uh, at the time was a regional orchestra uh, doing about eight to 10 uh, concerts per season. Um, but because it was driven by um, by an artistic director that had extremely ambitious um, goals for the orchestra, we actually ended up playing in Carnegie Hall a couple of times. Oh, great. and. Uh, yeah so it was a beautiful opportunity so i went to the audition actually uh just because i was looking for something else to do on the side and make a little bit of money and um i went to the audition and the committee listened to my audition and then they said you know um, this is a crazy request but we would like for you to um, can you come back in an hour and do you have any concertmaster solos that you can play mm. um and i said okay i can I can play them now, <laughs> so <laughs> I just I just played I think Capriccio Español and some Sheherazade kind of solos and and then they uh, asked me to sight read a few things and then they said you know this we've never done this before but uh, we think you are the person that uh, we would like to try out for concertmaster of our orchestra if you would agree mm. and I said. Geez, you know, I mean, you know, to show up uh, to show up uh, for an audition for a substitute violinist, and then to to get offered the concertmaster position is kind of it's not what you plan. Let's just put it this way: <laughs>
0: it's fairly insane. Yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> so, but but uh, you know, their concertmaster had actually tragically passed uh, away uh, right before the audition, and they the season was about to begin, and they didn't have any. Uh, plans yet mm. and uh, the conductor as I said was a, a very uh, he was a visionary to to put it this way and yeah. um, so I said of course I would love to be the concertmaster and I did that for four years while also attending school.
0: Yeah that was a wonderful story. Um, so far you've sort of dabbled in conducting a bit. At what point did it become something that was at least now you know, a very 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 important hobby or did you even start thinking then do you know what I think I'd, re- I'd really rather conduct
1: well I um, so I um, when I left Romania conducting was not even uh, a thought in my head I had absolutely no interest I, I was obsessed with uh, playing the violin becoming a soloist uh, I was practicing you know eight hours a day uh, doing my shredics and scales and all that <laughs> And um, and then when I arrived at Interlock and I remember the first day we had orchestra and we we were playing uh, Manuel de Falla's uh, three-cornered hat suite number two. Mm. And uh, this is a fabulous it's a fabulous school and you know the feeling of uh, a group of a hundred, you know 15 to 18 year old uh young gifted musicians that all of a sudden they get to play together and it's a it's an electrifying energy yes and this this was that first experience and i immediately fell in love with the orchestra as you said yourself Mm -hmm. um you know so i fell in love with the orchestra and then i started thinking oh my gosh you know this is this is so wonderful i really love this and um, so, after a year of playing in the orchestra, I stayed on at a, at a camp, and I met a conductor uh, there by the name of Larry Ratcliffe, who uh, was unbelievably inspiring to all of us, to all of us the students uh, at this music camp. Uh, we played the Shostakovich uh, Symphony number eleven under mm-hmm. him and I, and I remember I, that 's really the moment that I remember falling in love with the conducting profession just from working with him and seeing how inspiring he was so i went to him knowing that he teaches conducting and i went to him and i said look i i'm finishing school next year and i would love to come study conducting with you and he said um i was the concertmaster of this orchestra that he had conducted and and he told me he said look um conducting is such a difficult profession and you need a lot of preparation before you decide to become a conductor as well. But there's also a time test that you need to take. (laughs) Um, and, and, And he said, what I would suggest, he said, you go back to school, study violin, get at least a master's degree in violin performance, try to get a job in an orchestra. And then if that point, you still want to become a conductor, I will take you on as a student. Mm. and uh, so conducting from that point on was always a hobby in the back of my mind but knowing that this was the person I wanted to study conducting with I had to follow his advice yeah. which ended up being the greatest advice um I ever received as a as a musician as a young musician yeah. taking my time and studying a musical instrument and playing in orchestras and learning music uh, acquiring knowledge about music um so uh when i was at the university of miami i tried all these other things i became very very interested in composition and actually i almost gave up on my conducting uh dreams in order to become a composer but then uh, yeah it was strange how how uh, how that shifted but i uh i continued uh, of course playing the violin and i would do conducting a little bit on the side I would do a lot of composing this was probably my main focus and then the time came to say okay um I need to go get a master's degree and I remember filling out applications for a violin master's degree a composition master's degree and conducting master's degree Hmm. and and of course I came back to Larry Ratcliffe. so I called him I called him and I said, Larry, you know, I finished my undergrad and um, I want to come and do a master's degree with you. Uh, He he's teaching at Rice University and Larry said, Christy, um, here's the thing He said, you need to come and study and get a master's degree in violin performance with Sergio Luca, who was a wonderful, incredible Romanian violinist that taught at Rice University. And he said, once you get this master's degree with him, then I will take you on. There's no audition, anything. I will just take you on as a student. But you have to study with him first. <laughs> and 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 it just, of course, it, this was very frustrating, right? Uh, for yeah, a 20-year-old <laughs> so aspiring conductor. Yeah. Um, so then I sort of gave up on composition and I gave up, uh, or I put aside uh, um, my conducting and I applied uh, to Rice University. I was accepted into the master's degree program with Sergio Luca, who I have. I always, I, thinking back, I always feel like um, he was the person that taught me how to understand music, how to comprehend music, and and I feel like in in the lessons with him, I did. And he, the other thing that was frustrated, frustrating, is the first. Time I met him, um, he asked me. He said, "You know, I hope you know this, but I don't teach a two-year master's degree program. It's a it's a three-year degree program with me." <laughs> and I said, "Okay, okay." <laughs>
0: and, uh, the, goal, the goalposts keep moving, don't they?
1: <laughs> it kept, it kept, kept moving. Kept, but but he was also very fair with me because um, he asked me. He said, "You know, why do you want to study violin with me?" and at this point i was i was quite uh i was already quite frustrated you know and i said well honestly i want i need to study with you because if not uh larry will not teach me conducting and mm-hmm. that's my dream and uh and he said you know i appreciate you being honest and i think i think we can do something with this but what was fascinating about that is you know first lesson started and he had a very very uh, well thought out plan and method of teaching so the first lesson started and he said okay now i'm going to teach you how to hold the violin properly <laughs> and this and this is Kreutzer number two and this yeah. is how you play open strings and he didn't care that i was going to become a conductor we started from the very basics and i worked harder on the violin those three years than i ever than i had uh, at that point to Mm. that point in my life which was exactly what i needed it was exactly what i needed to become a conductor and in the process he taught me music he taught me how to how to understand um how to understand music you know what does it represent and i feel like um it was the first path into my discovery of what i like to refer to as the essence of what music is and what music represents.
0: Eventually, I'm assuming, therefore, once the goalposts has stopped moving, <laughs> that you got to study with, with uh, Larry Rackleff. So what was Larry like? What was his teaching approach like? Was he very much into stick technique and gesture or uh, a more holistic overall approach?
1: Well, um, uh, you know, Larry Larry has one guiding principle that that uh, is so powerful and and I think it goes very deeply into into the art of what a conductor is. And his guiding principle was that the he said the stronger the music screams inside you, the better or the more clearly your body will find a way to show it. Uh, And 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 that's so true. You know and and he said look I, I, I can teach you the gestures of conducting literally in about five minutes. Oh. and then the the rest you have to explore on your own, so um, what was wonderful is that once I got to Rice University, even though I was studying violin, um, Larry is also one of the most generous people i 've ever met, and um, he gave me conducting lessons for my three years as a as a, a violin student as well mm. after taking me on as a real Conducting master student, <laughs> and uh, and in those three years, I would say most importantly, and what I learned the most is his approach uh, to teaching conducting. He said, "Okay, come and watch every rehearsal. Come and then give me comments at the end of the rehearsal. You listen in the hall, and I don't want to hear anything that's good. I want to hear what are the things that we're not yet doing well. I mm. need you to so so I would take." Copious notes, copious. And then after the rehearsal, we would sit together for about an hour and I would say, well, you know, the French horns were late here or this was this or this was too loud or the articulation doesn't match here. And the most wonderful thing is that at the next rehearsal, he would address every single comment that I gave him, but he would address it in a way that I didn't even imagine would fix that problem. So I would hear that the french horns were late and instead of telling the french horns you're late here he would find a way to address fixing that issue by focusing on perhaps another instrument that needs to help the french horns or teaching them to listen to the right instrument in Northern. order for them to not get behind you know
0: what i mean absolutely yeah yeah
1: yeah and it was it was um you know, because then I studied with Larry for two years and then I stayed on as his assistant for three years. So this was an eight year long training period mm-hmm. side by side with Larry, where I have to say, because Larry is so generous, I think in eight years of studying with him, I probably talked to him every single day about something that had to do with music with conducting with life with um you know all this uh, all these aspects that go into forming a conductor and i really feel like his approach is actually a side-by-side mentoring uh which is why he only takes a couple students really yeah. um, every two years he doesn't have a lot of students but because he is so focused on the idea of discipleship um, which is how music used to be taught. You know? Yes, it and, and, yeah. uh, and I think it's so important. And then, and then he would do the same. I would be on the podium conducting my rehearsal and he would be sitting in the audience and taking notes. And then we would talk after those at the end and say, okay, now figure out a way to address these issues, but these are what the issues are.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: so I, I learned so much about rehearsing and music and studying and, um, of course, the conducting technique, but this was, in some ways, this was the the first thin layer, uh, and then there was so much underneath that 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 he focused on.
0: Mm, that sounds um, very immersive. Um, it also sounds like you you're finding ways to get the orchestra to play together by listening more, which is definitely something I'm very much. Uh, in favor of rather than just saying watch my beat which I'm, i've never really been in favor of um mm-hmm. and uh, yeah it sounds like an amazing sort of program i'm wondering having spent it, it that is... long that long with larry when you come to have masterclasses and sessions at tanglewood and aspen with david sinman rafael Frubeck de burgos Ollie nussen mm-hmm. um did they just add an extra layer on top or or Was it that thing where you take everybody's points of view because they're all so different and sort of put them together in your Mm -hmm. own brain?
1: Well, it's fascinating because in none of my um, times, um, you know, Aspen or Tanglewood, um, I never had a conductor that I considered a mentor or a teacher. Mm. I've never had any of them talk to me about my technique. This was never... I don't know why it was... I'm sure it wasn't great, but it was never an issue. And with David, and this is what I learned, and it was frustrating with David Zimmerman for two years because I remember, and I have tapes, you know, and sometimes I go back and I listen just for fun. Um, And David was such... uh, To him, the most important thing that he talked to me about, it was frustrating at the time, but now I get it. Now I understand the importance of this. David always talked to me and said, Christy, you have to find the right tempo for this piece to work. Mm -hmm. It has to have the right tempo. He said, if you don't, he said 99% of, of the struggle in a piece of music is if it doesn't click in the right pulse. It has to be, it has to be just right for the musicians to be able to lock in. And, and uh, you know, it, it killed me for two years. I, mm-hmm. I you know, it was, it, it didn't matter what I was conducting, David would say, now, was that the right speed for this piece? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he just had this way of, you know, reminding me of this in a very obsessive way. Uh, and And now, I think there is an unbelievable amount of truth to that, because um, it's it speaks so much to not just finding the right tempo or the right pulse or the right speed, but it also it speaks a lot about how do you listen to an orchestra to mm-hmm. understand what they need you know and and to understand why is it that this doesn 't work yeah. um, and and uh, it It was very deep that way, and then with uh, maestro frubeck. De Burgos, who I loved and and admired uh, tremendously. Um, He never talked about technique, but he was a true master of technique. He was, he was one of those people that um, orchestras loved playing with him because his technique and his, his way of conducting brought so much comfort to the music making process because you knew exactly where the baton will land and why and how uh, at what time. And it was with surgical precision that this happened every single time. And mm-hmm. I remember the first time I conducted uh, in a masterclass for him, um, we did Capriccio Español and he came and he sat in the principal second violin chair mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. so he can be right under my nose and, yeah. uh, and watched me. And he just, he said, you know, just do a rehearsal. It was a tangle with. I said do a rehearsal and then we'll talk in my dressing room afterwards and i said okay and i did my rehearsal and then when we finished about uh, 45 minutes later uh, he said now come to my dressing room and i went to my dressing room and he looked at me and i said and he said uh, christian he said i have to tell you one thing he said you make a beautiful sound with the orchestra and he said whatever you do for the rest of your life he said everything else you will learn I said, but don't lose this sound. He said, mm-hmm. do not lose this sound. I said, listen for this sound. And when you feel like it's not there, think about how you're conducting. Yeah. you know, And, and, and it was it, it was for the first time in my life that I had heard someone refer to your gestures or your persona on the podium actually creating the sound or influencing yeah. the creation mm-hmm. of the sound. But that is very true. It's, it's incredible to hear different conductors conduct and how they actually get a different sound from the orchestra. It's one of the great unknowns. I think about um, what is it that a conductor really does because you can't, you can't really define that, you know, what is it that a conductor does to get a certain sound, but somehow they do get a different sound. Yeah, um, and then Ollie, uh, Ollie was, uh, uh, you know, I would say Ollie was just an unbelievable cheerleader. I should say, uh, he was so incredibly supportive. And I remember uh, doing uh Colin Matthews uh, piece and Ollie was, he was just so um, supportive. And uh, after the concert, you know, came to me and, and um, you know, I want to use exactly the words that he did. I'm not sure uh, trying to, uh, to make sure this podcast is, is uh, rated <laughs> appropriately, but, uh, but he said that was just unbelievable. He said, so, um, and I remember, I remember that meant a lot to me because for, for a young conductor, um, a true compliment from, from someone that you look up to like all in us and, um, it, it goes such a long way, you know, it, it, uh, it it's very necessary and and, and I I really deeply believe that young musicians do better with encouragement than with uh, negative reinforcement.
0: From 2011 to 2017 you have an association with the Philadelphia Orchestra you start as assistant conductor, then become associate conductor and then conductor in residence. what was that like getting to learn to know an orchestra from the inside? Uh, what was the role was it, mm. was it was it with the orchestra or was it with the music director and how did they help you? How did the players of the orchestra sort of help you at all?
1: Well it was a, this was a, a, an unbelievable learning experience for me. It was also a very interesting set of circumstances. So, in two thousand and ten, actually, I I took an audition uh, for cover conductor for the Philadelphia mm-hmm. Orchestra, and uh, for the it's one of the only orchestras actually in the U.S. that will hold an audition in order to identify cover conductors that would come in for one week just to be on call in case something happens to the conductor okay Um, most orchestras just offer that to a young conductor on the basis of a recommendation or at someone's uh, request Um, but philadelphia orchestra insists on having an audition to to pick this pool so i had gone in for an audition um for for a cover conductor and i was on the list i went and i did a few weeks and then um about a year later uh they asked me to come in for an audition uh for assistant conductor mm. and i said uh, sure yeah i'm i'm i would love to so i went and i did my audition for assistant conductor actually this this audition was in 2010 and then they yeah. said well You know, we are, the orchestra would like to, um, we're going to go about this in a different way because it was the first time that the musicians actually were the ones voting. Uh, Charles Dutrois was the chief conductor at the time and he was not part of the process. He didn't want to be part of the process and the musicians then were going to be part of the process, which only meant that not all musicians, I mean, they didn't have a a unanimous, Uh, opinion and they said we're gonna do a one-year trial and we have two finalists and we're gonna split the work in half and then we'll invite you for half of the work and we'll invite the other candidate for the other half and then at the end of the year the orchestra will take a vote and then see who wins the job and i said my gosh you know this is this is the (laughs) longest (laughs) longest audition for an assistant (laughs) But, you know, it's the Philadelphia Orchestra. But what are you going to do? Yeah. So I, I did uh, all of that work. And then I still remember it was in uh, March of 2011. And I received a phone call from, from the vice president for artistic uh, planning. And he called me and he said, now, um, I have great news for you. He said, uh, uh, you have won the audition. The orchestra has voted and you will become our assistant conductor. He said, now... Tomorrow morning, there will be some news coming out of Philadelphia, and I want you to not be worried about this, and, uh, you know, give me a call tomorrow if you want to talk about it, but uh, just so you know, uh, hopefully everything will be fine, Mm. and I was thinking, geez, you know, (laughs) what is the news? Yeah, so I wake up the next morning, and the news is Philadelphia Orchestra files for bankruptcy, right? Wow. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) and and it 's a slightly different uh, uh, it 's a slightly different uh, kind of bankruptcy in the u s than it is in europe it 's basically uh, bankruptcy protection so it 's a restructuring of the organization to be but you are protected from your debts and uh, um, all the other circumstances that led you to to this financial crisis so what that meant actually and at the time i completely panicked. and my wife said well you know how are we going to move from houston where you know i was working at rice university and she was a professor at the university of houston and how are we going to move to philadelphia on the assistant conductor salary with an orchestra that just filed for bankruptcy uh, how can this happen and i said well let's uh, we have to try i said if i don't try it now what am i gonna do mm. um so we moved to philadelphia and The wonderful thing about filing for bankruptcy is they had to restructure absolutely all the costs, which meant that while in the past they had an associate conductor and an assistant conductor at the same time, and they had guest conductors coming to do all things that had to do with conducting, all of a sudden they had reduced everything to the duties of the assistant conductor. Mm. So I became... Assistant conductor, and in that first season, I conducted twenty-five different concerts with which the Philadelphia is, Orchestra, which is, which great. is remarkable. Yeah, yeah. It, right? yes,
0: and that. But yes. that's—it's that's also the sort of assistant conductor role that, in my it, mind, I mean, twenty-five is an awful big number, but it's—it's, it's, you know, just sitting around watching rehearsals all day doesn't make you a better conductor well I mean it does make you a better conductor but actually conducting makes you a much better conductor and by you learn by making sure. mistakes and the orchestra will know he's our assistant he's going to do things well he's right. also going to screw up uh, and you know they're <laughs> open to that they know that which is how you learn you know that's so I think that's a wonderful thing
1: yeah and, and the orchestra also I think because they had been the ones that picked me mm. you know um, they felt um they they were so involved in in uh, uh talking to me and giving me feedback i remember one of the first feedbacks that i got that has stayed with me so strongly in my mind um there is a wonderful gentleman that is a, is a double bass player in the orchestra but he's a very very direct and very honest and and mm-hmm. um wonderful but very direct and very honest person and I had conducted my first family concert and for Philadelphia Orchestra it's a 90-minute rehearsal for a 60-minute show basically mm-hmm. uh, the, the morning off you know the the concert is at 11 30 in the morning and you have a you have a rehearsal that goes from 9 until 10 30 with an hour break and then the concert so I went through everything and I had about 15 minutes left on the program uh, I mean in the rehearsal
0: Mm.
1: and I was, I was trying to manage the time as best I could so that I don't run out of time, which is why I was sort of rushing through everything to get to the end of the rehearsal. Um, and I finished, and then, you know, looking at the time, I realized that I had 15 minutes left, and I said, well, um, I said, that's I think we're ready, and uh, thank you very much. We'll, we'll finish early. Mm. And uh, I finished, and I walked into my dressing room, having the concept from in my mind that musicians always talk about how genius a conductor is that finishes the rehearsal early <laughs>
0: yeah especially in the and, uk i can tell you that yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but you know i arrived into my dressing room and this gentleman came to me and he said i don't know what experiences you've had in the past he said but this is the philadelphia orchestra he said we want to sound good Mm. was it really nothing that you could have done in those 15 minutes to sound to make us sound better like Mm. was this really the greatest thing that you've ever heard and I said no I think there were things that I still could have fixed he said exactly said next time you use those 15 minutes because we want to sound the best we possibly can Mm. and if you give us 15 minutes early Yes, there will be those that will like it on a superficial level, but you are also robbing us of 15 minutes of being able to sound our best. So so think about that. And, and I think there's a, it's a really great balance that a conductor needs to reach, of course. If I feel like the orchestra has really done their best and we've achieved all that we could have and there's room left at the end of the rehearsal, of course, I'm not going to sit there and, and, you know, kill the orchestra. But Mm. if you are in a situation where um, you are the only one that feels like perhaps it's time to end early maybe this is not a good idea, you know, and this was, I've, I've had, I've had experiences like this over and over with, with really great orchestras where they would much rather sound their best than go home 15 minutes early, Mm. you know, and, and there is a balance, as I said, but it's also a great lesson, but like this, there were so many lessons that I learned in Philadelphia, you know, like I remember uh, musicians coming to me, um, that I had never talked to before. But, you know, halfway during my first season, they would come to me after one particular rehearsal. And they would say, now, did you see what happened in the rehearsal today? And I said, yes. He said, okay, never do that. <laughs> <You know? laughs> or or, or think, things like this, you know. Yeah. And and uh, it's, it, yes, you know, when you're sitting and watching the rehearsals, you have a feeling of, okay, this sh- I shouldn't do this ever, or this seems like a good idea. But it's nice to have the reinforcement of a comment from someone in the orchestra that ha- actually had the experience of being part of that rehearsal. Then they come to you and they say, okay, don't allow something like this to happen. Or, mm-hmm. you know, make sure that you address the orchestra in a way where you never get back an answer like that. You yes. know, or uh, little psychological things actually that, that uh, uh, speak to the successful uh, time that you can have during a rehearsal.
0: Um, I have a question for you because it's much related to your time there, I'm assuming. Um, And I asked this question to Karina Kanalakis because the three of us were all in the same boat of all having been professional violinists who then Mm -hmm. went on to be conductors. And the question is pretty much the same as I asked her. Many people would say that we have an advantage being string players and conductors in the fact that learning to play a string is, is extremely difficult there's so many nuances with the bow and the contact and vibrato and all of that um whereas i would counter that argument by saying yes that's probably true but then i have to go around the rest of the orchestra and ask how does a horn player do this why is that note on the bassoon always flat uh where do you hit your timpani to produce that sound and not that sound do you, what during your six years at Philadelphia, were you constantly asking, or had you done a lot of this before at university with Larry Ratcliffe?
1: Um, yes and no. I mean, I, you know, the wonderful thing about conducting um, an orchestra like the Philadelphia Orchestra is that every person that is on that stage is really a master of their own instrument. Mm. And the conductor then, I believe, has the role of shaping the artistic vision, and then they will be able to um figure out how to do it you know my my violin teacher and i will i am answering your question but i'm going around <laughs> the, long, the long way <laughs> uh, my my violin teacher uh, sergio luca um i remember at an instance um i was studying composition as well with uh, this composer which he had commissioned to write a sonata for him mm. and i was so curious um how the interaction went uh, between the performer and the composer. So I asked my, my composition teacher, I said, how was your conversation with Sergio about writing the sonata? Like, what did he tell you? Mm. And he said, you know, it's really interesting. He, I was trying to ask him about, you know, is this possible? Can you do this on the violin? Is it, you know? And Sergio wrote me back one sentence and he says, your job is to write the music. My job is to figure out how to play it on the violin. So, yeah. r- write whatever you want, and I will figure it out and I use this uh, concept a little bit in conducting you know yeah. i think I think um, a lot of the time traditions started where conductors did not trust that the musicians had the ability to figure out how to do it on their instruments, so they were trying to give the answers that were not necessary to give mm. um, i think I think uh, conductors need to shape the artistic direction and the artistic vision of a certain piece and then it is the musicians at that level it is their duty to figure out how to do it on their instrument as long as it is clear to them what is happening now of course this is different depending on the level of the orchestra or the the ability of the ensemble or the role that you have you know um but in philadelphia um I have to say one thing that I learned is that the conductor that had a more clear artistic uh, vision was the one that actually was loved more by the musicians Mm. because then it was very clear for them what to do. And I had many instances where I, where I conducted something and I would say, is this possible uh, you know what I'm requesting and the musicians would say, yes it is i need a day to figure it out yeah. and then they would and it would be amazing and and stuff that uh, stuff that uh, you always hear uh, traditions cutting corners here or there or not cutting corners but making adjustments right yeah. into the into the musical score in order to give the ability to the musicians to do something that it's easier right exactly how you know and this i i uh, early on my, in my uh, career, I decided as a violin player that I knew exactly how I wanted the Boeings to work, right? Yes. So I created, I created my own parts for all the classical repertoire that I was conducting at the time. And then I was so proud, I, would go, I went to the first orchestra and I conducted, it was fantastic, right? Mm-hmm. And I felt so good. And then a year went by and I took my material to the next orchestra and nothing worked. Uh, And I said, how, how can this be that nothing worked? And then I realized, hang on a second, it's not about the direction that the bow goes in always. I mean, this is true sometimes, but every orchestra will have a different way of executing the musical idea. And I, (laughs) surprisingly to me, my ideas had changed in one year, you yeah, know.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And,
1: and that, and that's the problem with with creating a set that you don't update. So now I'm a little stuck because I still like to send my own set to the orchestras, but now part of my preparation for that week is to actually revise the set yeah. because my concept changes based on what I have learned during that one year. So it's a even with string players, which I feel like on the violin, I know exactly how to do things. Even with this, I usually write a note to the concertmaster and I say, um, <clears throat> "These are my bowings. Please use them as a starting point to understand what my musical concept is."
0: Yes, yes. If, you,
1: if you feel like in your orchestra you would, it would be better represented this other way. Feel free to change them. You know, so so. I hope this answers the question. I mean, I
0: just—I no,
1: yeah. I learned a lot about all instruments when I was studying composition, actually, and this mm. is this is uh, something that uh, I think served me really well in learning about um, uh, different instruments by writing for them. Yes. Um, also, I was lucky enough that um, all the members in my family played musical instruments that were diverse. So I remember as a little child talking to them about you know what's a french horn and you know my brother's explaining to me why is it difficult for a french horn to play above uh, you know a certain note on the uh, in mm. the register and and how do you make the jump uh, you know so um i never as an assistant conductor i uh, maybe i should have i don't know but i never felt the need um to find out more about instruments that i didn't know because I felt like I needed to focus a lot more on the musical interpretation and the artistic um, ideals of, of the piece and give the musicians the trust and the freedom that they will figure out how to do it on their own instruments.
0: In 2019, you become Chief Conductor of the WDR Symphony Orchestra Cologne, and all things being somewhat back to normal, you're due to start as Music Director with the Orchestra Nationale de France in 2021. So two exciting jobs. Um, Are you looking forward to doing both of those um, together uh, at the same time, and what challenges do they present to you? Well,
1: you know, when I started in Cologne um, in 2019, I really was not anticipating that I would add another job uh, so mm. soon. Uh, this was definitely not something that uh, that was my plan. Um, but, uh, you know, there's so much that has to do with um, fate and so much that has to do with listening to your instincts a little bit. I, I'm a strong believer in that. And it just felt right when I went to Paris and I did uh, uh, two concerts with ONF, and um, it just felt like the right thing. And mm. and and they uh, they approached me in the same way, and they said, "Look, we we weren't in a really desperate music director search. This was not. Um, we weren't trying to find someone right away, but." Um, when you worked with us it just felt like the natural thing to do and it felt good and we want to we want to go ahead with it so that's the first uh, it's sort of like my my little disclaimer right <laughs> um, but <laughs> and and uh, in Cologne you know I, I uh, uh, it was a similar thing when when I started in Cologne when I got the job in Cologne because the first time I came and I co- I came to conduct the orchestra uh, that air Symphony Orchestra I uh, conducted and it was a very good concert um, but i didn 't i didn 't think that uh, i mean i didn 't feel like this was uh, this was one of those weeks where I have to make sure that i I don't know. I, I need to win a job, and it's an audition. Mm. Said, no, yeah. it was very relaxed. We did uh, Ride of Spring. Um, I remember it was on the program, and uh, Tandun uh, Percussion Concerto with Martin Grubinger, and um, I think it was Tandun. No, maybe it was. Uh, no, it was Avner Dorman. Sorry,
0: mm. and
1: um, and but the week was very relaxed, and and I just remember loving the the music making process and loving the idea that there was absolutely no pressure you know and i think we've all been in circumstances where it's a fabulous orchestra uh it's a good conductor but it's a pressure kind of situation yes. And then nobody does their best huh. you know because the orchestra wants to not criticized but they are their enjoyment level is skewed by their criticism oh. of the person conducting um, so when you're looking at criticizing a conductor or or finding something about a conductor you will definitely find something that you don't like you <laughs> yeah, know, it's, just, it's human it's human nature you will find yeah. what you're looking for yeah. right yeah. Um, whereas if you're just looking at enjoying, uh, the music making process, that's exactly what you will discover as well. Mm. Um, so it's, a you know, I've been in many situations where I would go in and I would say, okay, this is, this, uh, intellectually speaking, this feels like, um, it's a job that I would love to have. It's an orchestra that I would love to work with and to be my, uh, my home orchestra, so to speak. And then, um, you know, it just did not feel right. It felt yeah. like a square peg, in, square peg in a round hole, you know. Um, but in both these cases, it just clicked, it felt right. And and then uh, um, I feel like I will continue doing both of them until it continues to feel right. Yeah. Um, and and uh you know i i have no idea what that is i mean you know people have created all kinds of models for themselves and said yo you know uh, a music director should not be longer than 10 years or 12 years but then you know you look at unbelievable uh, connections that have been created between fabulous conductors and fabulous orchestras who went on for 25 years
0: yeah exactly Yeah, i mean that they happen less often these days, and I don't really know why that is. But, yeah, I mean, you, you, can't, you can't turn around and say that, you know, um, Rattle's at the CBSO too long, or, you know, Mark, you Held, I mean, Mark Elder has been 20 years at the Hallé. You can't say that. Exactly. Or, you know, um, and what's interesting, going back on something you said is, you know, and I remember this as a player, when it came to, you know, uh, when Rattle left and we needed a music director, and then when Sakurama left and we needed a music director that you could feel that there were certain people who would come in a, in a week's work conducting and they were trying too hard because they knew there was a job going. Um, That's right. But, but also you're right in the fact that you, every week after the you know, the, the music judge announced they're resigning and they're going in two years' time, every week you're looking harder at a conductor thinking, well, are you going to be the person? And you're right, You you pick on... You know something that might be completely immaterial because you've forgotten about the music making process, and you can pick on That's one right. aspect of them. I mean, yeah, it's difficult. It's a difficult time. So it sounds like you've got those those two orchestras you've fallen in love with, and they've fallen in love with you. You know, just purely by happenstance, and not because it happened to be the time when exactly. You know, which is, which is the loveliest way, isn't it? You know, um,
1: exactly. In, f- in fact, when I when I went to Paris uh, the first time. I didn't even know that they were they were considering um, looking for a music director. This was not even you know, I just I went to them because I wanted to meet uh, ONF. I mean, it has an unbelievable tradition with all the conductors that have worked there. And um, and it's a incredible orchestra and and. Of course, I was very, very happy to go there. Mm. And then I went and we did Mahler 10. I remember uh, um, the adagio from Mahler 10 as the final piece on the program. It was a very uh, eclectic program, I should say, with mm. a lot of contemporary music that then finished with uh, the adagio from Mahler 10. And I remember in the in the performance, the Mahler 10, I, I could not believe my years, mm. how beautifully everything gelled and every, just everything worked and it was absolutely one of the most stunning performances that I was part of and I felt at the same time like I was not working hard to make this happen you know like it just everybody was giving the same amount of energy and and uh, dedication to this mm. and this really really stuck in my memory so when they came back to me and they said, look. They love that concert. They would like for you to come back as soon as possible because, you know, there might be something in the future. I was I was blown away. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I understood uh, in reference to that concert, but I was like, really? This is, it, uh, you must be joking. I said, this certainly, it's not going to be, it's not going to go, it's, it's not going to, this is not going to happen. It's mm-hmm. impossible. And then I went and I did the concert and I think after the first uh, Uh, rehearsal or the second rehearsal I don't remember the committee from the orchestra came to talk to me and they said you know this is uh, would you tell us uh, if you would be interested in becoming our music director and I said can I tell you tomorrow (laughs) can I ask my wife (laughs) can I ask my wife about this and uh and I did I mean absolutely uh, and I still just the same and i love I love the fact that both the Vder Symphony and o n f they share one thing that I think these two orchestras and I do as well um we share in common there is uh the only thing the only way I can describe it is there is an absolutely um abandonment of passion um I don't know if this is the right description but it well, feels in the, yeah. in the in the moment of the performance it feels like um uh it it feels so beautifully connected and on a level that is that is so intimate you yeah. know that that uh, I feel very hopeful about uh about this being this way for the future
0: Well, going to an analogy here um and, and this goes to show how, you know, and how an orchestra and a conductor um, gets together uh, to use this analogy is that, you know, I happened to be in Birmingham when the CBSO had a, had a, a blind date with Andrus Nelson, so to use a, uh, this metaphor, <laughs> and we fell in love at first sight. But that doesn't happen very often. It sounds like, you know, you and Vedia uh, and ONF Um, fell in love but you didn't even know you were going on a date which is also you know it's a lovely lovely way of of finding a partnership and I think it worked it can work in every way I think the difficult one is as we've discussed is when you know you're you're you go on it's speed dating basically uh, guest conducting yeah. speed dating and you're, you're 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 shoved in front of somebody who's looking for somebody and you're looking for somebody and it just it, it's uh, it, there's pressure in the room and i think that's hard i think that's very difficult um to be yourself and also for them to be
1: themselves um, exactly exactly yeah. and it's so important that the musicians feel the comfort from the podium you know yeah. feel the comfort of being able i always say you know for me uh a great uh, interpretation is the moment where the musicians are comfortable enough to play their best yeah. and i i would much rather take this interpretation over any ideas that i've ever had about music because it's so much better to listen to a brahm symphony when really everyone is comfortable to play their best than when they are uncomfortable but they're trying to to, they're trying to create a musical phrase that was imposed on them mm. by the conductor, you yeah. know. And, and, and I think that, that is what orchestras um, feel, you know, when you have that balance of comfort uh, paired with leadership in the, in the artistic sense and then, then they naturally want to follow that leader that is in front of them. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think that's the best analogy for me to what is it that makes a conductor successful.
0: I met you backstage at Symphony Hall in Birmingham when you were there conducting the CBSO one week. And then at the end of the week, you did... Uh, you conducted a concert with the CBSOs and Youth Orchestra, and I had prepared Bartok's Wooden Prince for you. This was in 2016. I see well, that you also conduct the World Youth Symphony Orchestra at your old alma mater in What is it yeah. about youth orchestras that brings you back and means that you are happy to work with them when some of our conducting colleagues would rather not conduct youth orchestras?
1: Um, for me, it's very simple. I think uh, our priority as artists as conductors is to pass on our knowledge and to pass on inspiration to the younger generation to continue the work that will be necessary after we are not there anymore i think Mm -hmm. this is priority number one and for anyone that feels like uh you know the education aspect is sort of a side thing that you have to reluctantly agree to do every now and then uh, i think they are in the wrong mindset Mm. because um, without relying on the younger generation to continue the work that we we hopefully are wanting to continue um what what is the future to look forward to i mean you know so i think it's a i think it's a selfish um it's a selfish approach to music making where um you don't put an emphasis on education and and uh, i put an as as much of an emphasis on education as i can i am uh, the artistic director and the principal conductor of world youth uh, symphony orchestra at Interlaken, but you know i've worked so much with uh, the national orchestras in romania Um, you know, with this uh, uh, system that started uh, 11 years ago. And now it's completely revolutionized the music scene uh, um, in Romania. And I've worked with them many, many times. Uh, In fact, we did a tour last year of the United States. And um, I'm uh, I'm coming to the National Youth Orchestra next year, you know. So it's a... uh, I try as much as I can in my, in my schedule to balance out my responsibilities of my job and my work with as much education um, that I can put out there. And some of my favorite, favorite moments uh, of my life are on stage with the 16, 17, 18, mm. 12, 10 year olds, you <laughs> yeah. know, making I mean, it's, you know, that's what I love about conducting a young uh, orchestra or a youth orchestra. They don't know what limits are, no. they don't understand limits. You know you throw in bartok's wooden prints and they yeah. play it yeah.
0: you know you know what i
1: mean um and and uh, and like you would never be able to do that with an amateur orchestra that is probably at the same level or a little better than the youth orchestra they would never tackle on bartok wooden Prince. like yeah. this would not even um they wouldn't trust themselves that they can do it Um, And here it is, you know, a youth orchestra, and they just, uh, they just believe in themselves with so much passion. And, and uh, I remember when I was 17, and I thought I should be music director of the Berlin Philharmonic, (laughs) you know, like, there is a, there is a beautiful, there is a beautiful belief in yourself that it's required um, when you're young. And, and uh, I love that
0: in a Mm. youth orchestra. When you come to learn a new score and because you've been involved with the Cabrillo Festival of of Contemporary Music, I'm assuming you have a lot of new scores to learn. When you come to learn those new scores, do you have a system for learning them uh, or a way of doing it that you find the most comfortable? And the other question I've asked virtually all the conductors is when you come to learn those new scores, do you write things in your score or are you one of these people who like to keep their scores blank? um so uh,
1: about studying scores in general i guess which mm. informs the new music as well um one of the greatest realizations that i had i would say i don't know maybe three or four years ago was and it was such a huge liberating uh moment in my life is when i realized that there are no two composers that require me to study them in the same way mm. and that each composer also teaches you how to study their music, um, and
0: that's very and, true. Yeah, and this
1: was very, this was very liberating uh, for me because then I didn't have to put myself in a straitjacket to look at Mozart's music in the same way that I would look at Stockhausen's music right Um, so it opened up uh, many pathways for me to be able to discover and to learn a lot more Um, my process is it always comes down to to one thing Um, what is it that i need to do to understand the essence behind this music Mm. what is it that i need to comprehend in order to portray the clearest picture of the emotions, of the um, underlying uh, message of mm-hmm. the piece, uh, the state of mind of the composer, the drama uh, of the context that is driven by historical events. Um, what is it that I need to understand? This, And then I try to come to this uh, simple, if I can call it simple, uh, uh, concept through any means necessary. <laughs> now, with some music, you have, to, you have to go very, very deeply into um, historical uh, meanings, you know, historical context of understanding why the piece was written. Um, some pieces don't require that. Uh, uh, I remember having a conversation one time with Pierre Boulez and asking him, uh, I said, Maestro, what, what do you study? you know, and, and he said, oh, it's very, very simple. He I said, I, I look for structure. He said, I only study structure, you know, and I said, well, that's, uh, I said, thank you. I said, now, can you please tell me what do you mean? <laughs> you know, because yeah. conductor, conductors like to throw that thing around. They said, oh, well, you know, structure is so important. I said, fine, now, define structure for me. Tell me, how do you get there? Right. And then he said, ah, he said, that's interesting question. He said, well, Structure will be revealed to you. Once you've answered all the details. Okay. And, and that's so true. That's Mm. absolutely true. It's amazing. Once you understand why a C major goes to a C minor in this point, or why the harmonic motion is a certain way, or why the pulse of the music is a certain way, and why the character of the rhythm and the articulation is a certain way, then you understand the structure. Like you can't, you know, sometimes I I talk to young conductors who tell me that they look at the score, they try to, they understand the structure, and then they try to uh, go deeper into the smaller gestures and I said no that's backwards mm-hmm. like start with the small gestures and then don't worry about the structure the structure will reveal itself when you're ready to see it mm. you know um uh, i'm a strong believer in that so that for me that's uh, that's the process the process for me is to look at th- at the the what which mm. defines the character of the music for me. And this I understand from the rhythm of the piece. The articulation is very important for me to understand um, in defining the character. Then I'm looking at how, which is the journey for me of the piece. And this is defined by the harmonic motion of the piece or the lack of harmonic motion of the piece. And then Mm -hmm. I'm looking at um, uh, connections that I make, the phrasing structures, and things that I can understand in this way. Um, and then ultimately I love making schemes and charts of dynamics Mm. because dynamics speak so much about the context that we actually have to be in on stage in order to portray what the composer meant to say, you know, so to me, a forte is only loud if it comes after a piano, Mm. um, and, and, you know, or a pew forte, let's say is only, uh, louder if it comes after after a softer dynamic so um and all those things dictate the context um, where i think the score is a two-dimensional representation where the dynamics the addition of dynamics create a three-dimensional representation of the music which is what ultimately we try to do and with new music is exactly the same Mm. um, in the sense that I try to define the character of the piece. I try to define the context from where it comes from. Then I try to understand the context we have to be in in order to perform it. Um, and I try to understand the journey through the harmonic motion, which then hopefully will define the structure of the piece. Some scores I write in because I feel like I need to remember that. Yeah. And some scores I just don't need to write it in. I just yeah. remember it because it's so there is a trigger that it's so evident to me that yes. i don't even have to write it in right. you know so um it, it depends it depends on on uh, on the score i definitely would say that uh, as looking at my own scores the scores that i felt i was less prepared for are the ones that i've written more in than right. the right. ones yeah. that i've studied more
0: yeah
1: you know i feel i feel deeper and i feel like Uh, uh, studying a score and musical knowledge um, are actually two different aspects of who we are as conductors and they are strongly intertwined but the idea is you study a musical score so that you gain musical knowledge and knowledge then is represented through um, musical instinct when you are on the podium Mm. because a lot of the decisions that you make you can't study or plan in advance, these directly speak to the musical instinct that is defined by the knowledge that you've gained through your study of scores overall in your life, Um, which is why I also uh, never, I have never really felt like um, I have understood everything about a piece before I conducted it, but I've also learned to be okay with that Mm. because I know that studying this one score is just one more... Um, way of adding to my overall musical knowledge, which then is represented in my instinct about music overall, which will then help me interpret the piece that I'm conducting at the moment.
0: So, Christy, it is time for the 10 questions, and as ever, I will start with, what sound or noise do you love, and what sound or noise do you hate?
1: Um, I love walking through the forest and hearing birds chirping. This is very calming and beautiful to me. Um, I hate the sound that an airplane makes flying above.
0: If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? Um, Playing with my kids. And who would be a favourite conductor of yesteryear?
1: Um, There are many, many that I loved. I would say whenever I think of a conductor that I admired their ability to create a beautiful musical phrase and concept, um, I come back to Gunther Wand very, very often. Mm. So definitely high on my list.
0: And who would be a favourite current conductor? You know, I
1: feel like I learned so many things from many, many conductors, but I would say a conductor that um, has remained a reference for me in my career, um, that I look up to a lot. Anything they do and everything they do, I I listen and I try to uh, understand why not everything I would do the same way but definitely is a reference conductor for me, is uh, Simon Rattle. Sir Simon.
0: What is the hardest work you have ever conducted?
1: I think from a technical point of view, probably the most challenging one that I did was the Gerald Berry Piano Concerto um, that I did a couple of years ago. uh, And it was so difficult that uh, as soon as I finished the performance, I immediately went back to my dressing room, I started studying again, and I reprogrammed the piece to be performed a year later, <laughs> just so that I can so that just so I see if I can do it again. Yeah. Um, uh, but I think uh, from an from an emotional um, point of view, um, I don't know if if it's difficult, but but um, I have to say, first time first time I did Trovatore um, it was definitely. Uh, very difficult mm. just to really have the confidence and the and the ability to overcome all your fears of of conducting a Verdi opera for the first time and not just a Verdi opera by Trovatore uh, you know so um, emotionally speaking I think that was probably one of the most difficult things I've done
0: when traveling abroad to conduct what item could you not leave home without
1: um you know I I uh, I always need to have a really great pillow, uh, you know, like a head pillow that Mm -hmm. I take with me for the road. It doesn't matter um, how short or how long. So I always have this with me. But anything really that makes the actual traveling from point A to point B more enjoyable, meaning, um, you know, I wear the most ridiculously comfortable clothes when I travel and sometimes I look um, ridiculous, but I don't really care. Um, uh, Getting on the airplane, at least it used to be getting on the airplane. um, It had to be all about comfort. So, uh, you know, comfortable, comfortable socks, uh, comfortable shoes, uh, comfortable head pillow, uh, soft. Uh, you know, sunglasses so that <laughs> there is no light. Um, you know, any of that. Uh, I'm I'm very obsessed with that idea of comfort while traveling.
0: What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor?
1: Um, you know, if if there would be a way for me to. Um, to spend more time with my family. And that's the one thing that I think has been a beautiful side effect um, of the current um, time that we live in Mm -hmm. is that I've been home with my children for almost nine weeks now. Um, And I really, really um, love this. And I hope that in the future I will be able to find a good balance where the travelling will be kept um, at a minimum uh, while still being able to maintain the relationships that I have with the orchestras that I love and cherish.
0: What profession other than your own would you like to attend? Well, I've always
1: loved working with numbers uh, in one way or another. So um, I love the idea of myself being an architect uh, or. Uh, doing something that is both artistic and has to do with mathematics and calculations and um, I love mathematics and uh, algebra is really, uh, I don't know, I just really like it. So, something that had to do with um, balancing those two aspects uh, that are in me, I think would be very satisfying, actually.
0: And finally, if the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink?
1: Um, Uh, You know, in Romania, every important meal starts with soup and a really fine, beautiful, um, clear broth soup uh, would probably be my choice.
0: Christy, it's been a wonderful, wonderful time talking to you. Fascinating. And I hope to uh, bump into you backstage somewhere again very soon.
1: Thank you very much, Mike. Appreciate it.
0: A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I talk to an English conductor who is equally at home in both the Concert Hall and the Opera House. He has also written articles for newspapers and written a book on the whole subject of why conducting matters. Until then, bye-bye.